current thing with me, Nick Dixon, where we talk about politics, the culture war, and anything else that comes up. And today we have a very special guest, our first Lord, Lord Frost, a.k.a. David Frost, Conservative peer, former chief negotiator on Brexit. Lord Frost, thanks so much for doing the show. It's always great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, was, I was saying just before the show, I was slightly gutted. You'd already done Jamie's Irreverent podcast. We've had Jamie on, very popular episode. But you seem to do a lot of podcasts. It's good that you're across the, the new media. Yeah, I try to be. And it surprises me always that um, politicians don't do this as much as they should because, you know, it's fr- if you get on the Today programme, you get like 10 seconds to say something before you're interrupted and everything's got to be boiled down into these um, really simple statements. And in a podcast, you get time to talk. And, you know, you can admit things, you can talk around things. It's just much better. And I, I, I don't know why people don't do it more. Yeah, and then they clip something out of context to try and get you in trouble. <laughs> Ten seconds. Yeah. Ho- hopefully that won't happen. Um, all right, so I, I normally start with quite a softball question, but I think this is just too, too important and we don't have time for that. So I'm going to go in with a big question that concerns me, lots of people I know, which is that we've had a Conservative government for quite a while now, yet we've just seen the immigration figures, 606,000 net immigration, probably higher in reality. We've got wokeness infiltrating all our institutions, the civil service, the police, universities, schools, we could go on. We've got a, a high tax country as well. So the obvious question is, why haven't the Conservative Party done anything Conservative? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think, um, to be fair to the Conservative Party and to us, you know, we've been in power 13 years, but um, not always in the way we would have wanted. We're in coalition for the Lib Dems for five years. We then had the massive Brexit issue. We had Theresa May sort of stumbling around it and uh, making a bit of a mess of it all. So it's only really in the last few years, I would say since 2019, we've had a clear majority. Since then, we still have not done as much as we would have wanted. And I think one of the reasons is the the Tory party in Parliament is now a really, really broad church. You know, it's the this left-wing fringe is really quite left-wing. Its right-wing fringe is pretty solid and sound. And so finding stuff that keeps everybody happy is... is um, is tricky, but um, I, I, I don't have a very good answer. And certainly ever since I've come into this properly, I've been trying to get more conservative policies, but it, um, it, it's only partly happening at the moment. So I have a friend, my friend Carl always says that the conservatives are trapped in the Blair paradigm. Would you say it's true that Cameron came in, he was the heir to Blair, as he said himself. There's a very interesting documentary uh, Peter Hitchens did called The Toff at the Top, which suggests that Cameron started out trying to do some conservative things. That didn't really work for him, so he completely abandoned that. So is it the case that they're sort of trapped in the Blair paradigm? And the problem with that is that Blair, although he was in some ways the continuation of Thatcher economically, he was actually pretty lefty. He, he was actually got a lot of radical things through the Equalities Act, 2010 being one of the big ones. So was that was that Blair? I hope, hope, hopefully that was was that Blair. Or was that Brown? It was. It was Brown. Okay, Brown. Yeah, right at the end. But yeah, Brown. New Labour yeah. in general. You know, and yeah. since then it's been it's been the Blair paradigm. What do you think to that take? Yeah, I think there's a lot in it, and I certainly think there's a very strong view has been in the party that, you know, you have to be socially liberal like Blair, that, you know, all these things only go in one direction. And if you look like you are sort of behind the curve of history, then it's always going to be a problem for the Tory party. And that's that's a very strong view. It's taken us um, in a direction that hasn't always been helpful. I do think, though, that 
you know, it's partly also that, you know, historically the Conservative Party is the party of the rich, to simplify it a lot, but at least that's what people have, have thought what it was. And uh, after Brexit and under Boris, you know, it, it tried, and I think still is trying, to become the party of people who want change, you know, who want things to be different in their lives, who think that, you know, the economy is not growing and they want it to grow better. They want to just, you know, keep the government out of their lives and get on with their own lives and for things to change. And I think that's quite a hard thing for a Conservative Party to adapt to. So you've got this argument between people who say, you know, we should be the party of of people in the the south the blue wall the people who are well off the sort of traditional conservative voters and you've also got people saying we should be the party of people who you know want want to get on the self-employed the you know the people who are not particularly well off but want to get better off and you can't necessarily always maintain those two things together uh, uh, without some cognitive dissonance and I think that's part of the problem at the moment can't work out whether to pivot back to the traditional sort of Cameron view of the world or whether to go with the Boris coalition that's one of the internal arguments at the moment so presumably having worked with Boris you're on the sort of Boris side keep the red wall type of side I mean I think you should try and do both in a way I think you know the party the Conservative Party, the Tory Party, is for people who kind of um, want to get on with their own lives, want to get politics out of their lives, believe in free markets, believe in people being able to kind of get on with things and achieve things on on merit, obviously with a, a safety net. And I think uh, you know though that can appeal to both blue and red wall. I think we have to try and maintain that coalition. I think in many ways actually it's London that's the outlier. London attitudes are rather different from the rest of the country and you know we Tories and Labour are both very dominant and dominated still by the sort of climate of opinion of opinion formers in London. The commentariat, the new elite, whatever, that that probably has disproportionate influence and it, it isn't what the rest of the country thinks. Right. Yeah, I've noticed this. I mean, m my opinions are very out of step with London, but um, I do learn a lot talking to the, the blob people who live in North London. But um, it's interesting. I, yeah. I, want, I was going to ask you about the future of the party, but I also first, because it's so topical, the, uh, I also want to ask you about immigration first, because we've just had this massive 606,000. I mean, that is, that's a huge problem. I mean, why, why have the Conservatives not managed to fix this? There was a, a point in Douglas Murray's book, The Strange Death of Europe. He basically said this is too difficult a problem to fix. So politicians defaulted to sort of calling anyone racist who had a concern about it. And, you know, there were arguments made that it was the, the economy, we needed immigration. There's been arguments about birth rate, but I, they, they seem to have been pretty much debunked. I mean, Murray's debunked a lot of these economic arguments. Paul Morland in the Telegraph podcast uh, off script debunked this idea that it's going to fix our birth rate problem because it's only a short term fix. And then we know about all the, the problems, you know, social cohesion, pressure on services, on housing, etc etc so is there actually any benefit to immigration and why has it not been reduced and can it be done and how can it be done mm. so i i mean first thing to say is of course we don't really know what the figures were before 
um, uh, we left the EU. We weren't able to count EU migrants. We only knew when we counted them up that there were twice as many as we thought. We thought there were three million EU citizens here. In, in fact, there turned out to be six and a half million. So obviously immigration was in fact a lot higher in the past than the figures say. So it may be that now is not so big a jump as uh, as people think. But it is too high, and it was too high, and we still have to do something about it. I think, personally, um, a small amount of immigration each year, like under 100,000, is probably a good thing for a, for a modern economy. It keeps the, the sort of wheels turning. But we have to get it down from this high, high level, and obviously there are some special factors, but basically the economy has got... You know, it's sort of got addicted to an endless supply of relatively cheap labour, and now it's coming from different places. Uh, but we still haven't adjusted, and Brexit was about adjusting to a different model. We need um, less immigration, higher productivity, uh, higher wage jobs, and that's not going to happen until we turn the tap off. So I think, you know, we just have to. Um, commit to getting these numbers very significantly down and so far it's not happening. Has it been a lack of will then or just a lack of competence in getting the numbers down? I think it's always the easiest thing to do um, uh, you know in the short run you, 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 you help business you sustain growth by keeping people coming in um, so if your time horizon is short then that's always what you choose to do but and I, I, th I think partly the party, the government, got on the idea that people wanted control, they didn't really care about the numbers. And that led us down a wrong path in the last couple of years. Now we know it isn't only control, we actually have to get the numbers down as well. The trouble is that uh, the, the words are now devalued. We've been saying it for so long. That nobody any long any longer believes that we are actually going to do it. They'll only believe it when they actually see the numbers coming down. So I don't think there's any choice other than to be much more restrictive about visa conditions, generally squeeze the numbers coming in, and restore kind of credibility in the system. So that's a funny idea, isn't it? The idea we wanted to take back control but not actually exercise that control. That's, that's yeah. a strange premise. I don't know why anyone absolutely would, why would it, we'd want that. Um, and what do you think? To, so I had Richard Tice on this podcast, obviously leader of Reform UK mm. at the moment. And he, a few days after our podcast, announced his plan of net zero immigration. What do you think? Like, do you have a number in mind? His idea was obviously emigration is pretty high every year as well. But just, so it's just a net zero coming in and that's quite achievable. Any thoughts on that? So I think I think you probably need a small amount of immigration just to sort of kind of oil the wheels of the economy you know you you can't train people overnight uh, the economy changes year on year you always need a sort of slightly different mix of skills year on year and having a small amount of immigration probably helps in that adjustment and makes it less painful than it otherwise would be but I would say you know the goal of tens of thousands a year is is probably right it's got to be that kind of order rather than where we are now. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, that, that goal was set in something like 2012. But, you know, we needed to get down yeah. from the hundreds to the tens, and it certainly it didn't happen, did it, at all? No, <laughs> we've never got anywhere near it, um, in fact. It's just gone up. So, yeah, well, I ask about these things because yeah. I know voters are very concerned about them. And, and it, you know, at this, at this point, it's sort of why should we vote Tory? I mean, I was doing that live event 
which I think you listened to, the Weekly Skeptic Live, and we asked, you know, who's going to vote Tory here? And it was hardly anyone. I said, who's going to vote Reform? Quite a few hands went up. Maybe that's just my little enclave. But, you know, I think as a protest vote, and especially if Farage gets involved again, but even as a protest vote, I think a lot of people will vote Reform. I mean, do you think that's a serious uh, threat to the Conservatives? I mean... (laughs) There's obviously a, a, a drift of a small number of voters off to reform, and it's you know it's picking up like five, six, seven percent. Um, some of the people who voted for us in 2019 are drifting off to reform. I think it, you know, it isn't having the same impact as UKIP and the Brexit Party and so on. The numbers are not the same. It, it makes life more difficult. But I, I, I keep saying, you know, don't don't go to reform you know obviously there's a lot in the reform program that many conservatives will sympathize with but why should it be us that are forced out of the party the conservative party is a conservative party why should we give it to people who you know in my view aren't always conservatives and leave and go and set something else up i think people should fight to make the conservative party conservative people deserve that choice and the party the conservative party's got massive organization in the country that can't be replicated overnight and in my experience most tory party members are pretty sound conservatives and one of the things that worries me a bit when i see the party out in the country is the gap that's opened up between members and mps they're often very critical of the parliamentary party who they think are not as conservative as they should be so i think i think there's quite a lot to fight for yet and i'm not willing to to give up on it and uh, i think there's lots of people in the party who feel the same yeah and of course it didn't help that the members uh, want, wanted liz trust but the party seemed to want Rishi Sunak, so that's another blow. I mean, very hard to recover from from all that. And, and still, I mean, do you do you think actually that how do you think the election is going to go then at present? Because uh, you know there are two takes really. One that actually it's going to be not as bad as we think from a conservative perspective, and the other is that you're just going to get totally obliterated. Well, I mean, it's still all to fight for. I think uh, you know if the polls don't change between now and polling day, then we're going to lose because. You know, you'd, if you're 10 to 15 percent behind, you don't win the election. That's that's obvious. Um, I I um, you know I th- I think we need to have um, more conservative policies, more recognisable conservative policies that are going to bring back people who voted for us in 2019. I mean, it seems to me a more plausible proposition to try and get back people who voted for you only three or four years ago than it is to bring back people who remote voted remain and lib dem and generally are a bit uncomfortable with what you stand for so i think that's what we what we need to do and i think it still can be done but but you know at the moment steady as she goes is not is not doing the job right yeah and she is a sort of steady candidate but yeah it's not really enough to to rescue it i don't think especially with this net immigration figure but so what would you do? I mean, you're, you're sort of at the, perhaps at the coal face of shaping the new direction of the party, I imagine. I mean, you, you must have a, a fair amount of influence. I mean, so what is your sort of vision? I don't know, you know, vision's maybe a bit of a party conference word, but what, what is your, yeah, we'll go with vision of the future of the Conservative Party. And we can then get on to NatCon, which is, probably ties into it. Yeah, it does a bit, I think. I mean, 
my view is that we've got to do two things. We've got to like free up the economy again. Um, you know, the tax and spend are just too high. There's too much regulation. All of this, this sort of familiar conservative agenda. And there are conservatives who say, you know, don't worry too much about all of that. Um, you know, tax and head and spend is durably high and we've got to live with that and maybe a bit of industrial policy and protectionism as well. I think all history shows that just produces slower growth and we shouldn't be up for that. We should be up for faster growth. So you need to do that. That's one bit of it. And the other thing is we need to kind of rebuild this country, this nation that we're now back in charge of after 50 years. We're now able to um, do whatever we we wish, win a mandate, change things, uh, you know, set things on the right path. And that means that means a lot. You know, it does mean um, it means law and order. It means migration. It means getting devolution uh, better organized. It means proper defense spending, standing for things in the world again. It means all the things that go with running your own country. And I don't see why that's not compatible with um, a free market approach to, to economic policy. If we are getting 2 or 3% growth a year, we'd feel a lot better about a lot of things. We wouldn't have any of the conflicts that we have. And we feel much more able to spend money where we needed to, to spend it. That's really got to be the, the focus. Okay. So it's okay. So it's just it's a return to the free market and actually achieving growth. I mean, so and you sort of set this out at NatCon. So for people that don't know, there was this National Conservatism Conference. I was there for bits of it, and I've listened to your speech uh, and I've I've read your uh, Telegraph article. And actually, there was an interesting article from Dr. David McCrogan in the Daily Skeptic, a bit more slightly more skeptical article, I would say. And 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 the sort of broad divide, as I saw. I mean, firstly, what did you think about? The conference as a whole, and, and and do you think the key divide was between, well, what McCrogan's calling a reheated one-nation Toryism, or you know some might call a kind of Steve Bannon-esque economic nationalism, basically protectionism, versus your kind of more Thatcherite free market approach? Was your sort of conclusion that you, most people agreed we need social conservatism, we need the nation, but we was the major major disagreement on economics? I mean. I think I thought it was a great conference, first thing, and you know it really taps into the wish of people on the right generally to kind of talk about policy. They're not getting space to do that in the the party as it stands, and this was a really kind of interesting um, three days from the intellectual point of view. I learned a lot, and a lot of it made me think quite a lot about what I thought and that's that's always really important so it's great and I hope we do some more of these things um, I think everybody I mean what people agreed on I think was more obvious than what they disagreed on despite all the commentary I think if somebody had just sort of wandered up and listened to the speeches they'd have thought probably these people agree on most things and they agree on you know, that no, everybody is pro-Brexit. Everybody thinks national democracy and the nation-state and running your own affairs are good things. Nobody wants to go back. Nobody thinks that the country is working well at the moment. That the model is not delivering for a lot of people. That's common ground as well. I don't think anybody thought that, like, with a few tweaks, things could get back to normal. That there are 
fundamental underlying problems. There, I mean, there was a disagreement between those who, you know, kind of tilt to economic nationalism, protectionism, you know, maybe the belief that the state can direct spending, and those who, um, you know, are more free market, more willing to leave judgments to the market than, than the others. But, you know, I suspect in real life, it's a kind of theoretical difference that definitely would play out. But in practice, um, in real life, I think that difference would be less obvious. I don't think anybody's really comfortable with spending 48% of the country's wealth on, uh, you know, through the government. I think everybody would like to have a different model to the one we've got now. Is there a divide partly between young people who just feel disenfranchised and they haven't benefited from this free market? I mean, there was another event I read a, an article about and sort of Daniel Hannan was trying to pitch Thatcherism basically, and the young people were not really interested in it because they can't buy a house. Uh, you know, the, the, their wages have stagnated, the, the inflation, high tax. Do they just not believe anymore? Even though you're saying, ironically, that would be the solution for them, do they just not believe in that anymore? I mean, I think um, it depends a bit who you ask, but um, I do think that, you know, young people have had a pretty raw deal over the last 20 years. I, I don't think that's because they've been dealing with a, um, you know, a kind of super free market that has locked them out. So I think the problem is that there are too many non-free market things happening that have locked them out. I mean, the housing market is not a remotely free market, for example. There's, you know, government's holding down interest rates, or has been to the last few months. So asset prices shoot up. They're, they're obviously not building enough houses. That sustains the price as well. That's not remotely free. Um, uh, you know things like um, the the extra tax that in effect young people who've been to university are paying over a prolonged period. They have the highest tax burden in the country. Um, all this sort of thing, you know, is just kind of reducing opportunity. And um, I think the see, you know, the answer to that is is to go back towards the market, not endlessly look to the government to try and correct the the mistakes of how things are operating now that just takes you further down you know the, you don't like something you ask the government to correct it there's some unexpected consequence so you ask the government to correct that as well and before you know it you've got a total mess and i think that is part of the problem people who've got their houses who've got good jobs you know they're happy to stay in the system as it is now but it is locking out people who deserve a better chance and it'll kill off the Conservative Party if we don't adjust to that. And I do want to get back to NatCon, but how would you fix housing? I mean, it's another massive problem that no one's been able to fix. Is it immigration? Is it lack of building? Is it regulations? What is it? Is it landlords having all the power? What is, what is the problem? So I, I think it is, you know, fundamentally is we've just not built enough houses over the years. We're probably about four million short if you compare us to France. If we built at the same rate as France, we'd have four million more houses and we'd all feel a lot better. Um, so we need to do that. Obviously, migration's part of it. And, you know, that you can't just ignore that. It is 
pushing up the number of new households every year. Um, and I don't think we will solve the housing problem until we solve the migration problem. It's just politically impossible the, for, for, to say, you know, we'd like to build uh, build large parts of build over large parts of the outskirts of your beautiful village. And you know, the response you get is just people say, well, they'll all be taken by by new migrants. What's the point? You, you know, you've got to deal with both of these problems together. Um, but fundamentally, I think we've got to build more houses. There's, there's no way around that. The politics are extremely difficult, uh, but all the same, um, the Tory party's got to do with it, do that, because, you know, signs are Labour are beginning to wake up to this and they won't have any compunction in building over Conservative Party constituencies for the benefit of Labour supporters. So, you know, it's just like fundamental to the to the offer. We've got to do that somehow or other. We've got to do it. Yeah, that's one of those strange ironies that, I mean, Labour are the only ones, not the only ones, but they seem to be talking tougher on NHS reform because they don't get called evil Tories when they do it. So where Streeting yeah. can talk about it, they can also suddenly talk about housing and suddenly they're sounding, yeah, they're tackling these things that Conservatives can't. But yeah, I, I have some sympathy for all sides of this because housing is a massive problem. I've not been out to buy a house. Maybe that's my own uh, fault. But I think about where I'm from in the lakes. It's virtually impossible to build anything. But part of me sympathizes because I don't want my parents to have to have some rubbish housing built next to them. So there is that nimbyism. And obviously those people are more likely to be, although my parents aren't, but people are perceived as likely to be Tory supporters if they have a house in the country and so on. So it's very difficult because it seems like parts of even the right of, of the party maybe the side that you're on, try and block anything on sort of NIMBY grounds as well. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of our supporters out there in, in rural England, you know, clearly are, you know, don't like house building. That's clear. Um, and I don't blame them. I, I mean, it's it's kind of rational from an individual point of view, as you say, you know, particularly when you look at the, the low quality houses that often get built in practice and I'm not surprised um, so you know we have to to try and encourage better quality nicer housing uh, for sure and I think Michael Gove is right about that if if, if, if not many other things um, he but I somehow we've got to unlock the politics of this and you know wealthy Tory voters have um, have children you know, they can't get on the ladder. You know, there's only so much you can do yourself to resolve these problems. You need a functioning housing market and people to be able to form families and just live like normal lives. And um, we've got to find a way of unlocking that, that politics. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is a totally um, sort of not party policy, but I do actually wonder whether we will need a referendum to unlock a plan in due course that we'll need you know that we'll need to say we're going to build x million houses approximately here and try and unlock the politics through a, a national referendum rather than constituency votes wow but i can't see that's that's down the line probably can't see that going wrong um, <laughs> just, we, 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 had, we had one I mean, referendum. We could lose it but yeah but yeah yeah we had a referendum i don't i recall there being a few issues but um that's so funny. We could, we could end up with loads of referendums. I mean, Farage wants to do a net zero referendum. We could just have constant referendums. Maybe that's the way in, instead of party politics. That, that's really interesting. I've never heard that before. Um, and one, It's funny enough you talk about ha the houses and the, and the quality of housing because one of the things that actually got a massive 
round of applause at NatCon for you in your speech was talking about we've built unnecessarily ugly housing. We've teared, we've torn down good housing. We need to, we need to tear down all this brutalist rubbish we built. And that got a massive uh, cheer. It's interesting that people cared so much about that. Yeah, that really surprised me, actually. Um, it feels like, you know, sometimes it's a bit of a niche concern, but maybe it isn't. And, uh, you know, I do think one of the reasons people don't always feel of as proud of this country as maybe they should is is the the built environment you know a lot of what we've done to this country since the war is a bit rubbish it just looks horrible you know my own hometown derby was was wrecked in the 60s and 70s with sort of los angeles style freeways built through the middle and um you know that's replicated in so many other places and i i do think it has a generally kind of depressing effect on you if you live in an ugly unpleasant concrete environment and you know, I, I think we have kind of learned that lesson, but there's a lot of it around still. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see a bit more of it replaced. Yeah, of course, it's a, it's a big concern amongst conservatives because Roger Scruton talked about it a lot. Why Beauty Matters was his documentary, mm. and he basically said, you know, there's no reason for things to be ugly. There really isn't any reason. And you know, and the left has tried to claim beauty's relative in art and so on, which is nonsense. And they've kind of deconstructed the whole idea of inherent beauty. But we all know what aesthetically is pleasing what isn't and it's just funny we've abandoned that but yeah it's a, it was very interesting yeah. that got a, such a big response um and i wanted to go back to natcon because i've never fully come off it because um it, it was a big event it was important for, at least for conservatives and the response to it was so strange both from the twitter sphere we, we understand that that the twitter people are going to go mad and say that douglas murray is a fascist <laughs> and all this nonsense you know that that was just the optics of it and uh, which we can talk about but the, f the first thing i wanted to ask you was about the response from within the Conservative Party, especially Matt Hancock. So, well, I mean, there was this News Agents podcast, this awfully named podcast with Emily Maitlis and others, and you don't have to <laughs> comment on that, but Emily Maitlis said, uh, what, she said it was uniting some of these flavors, which is hard Brexit, populism, nationalism, anti-immigrant, anti-globalization, prejudice, just threw that word in randomly, anti-woke, bit of climate denial, anti-vax, maybe a little side soup son of homophobia thrown in, which Douglas Murray will be gutted to find out about. Um, so, being gay. So, and then Hancock yeah. came up with this bizarre thing. So Danny Kruger was at the event and he made a speech where he said, the normative family held together by marriage, by mother and father sticking together for the sake of the children and the sake of their own parents and the sake of themselves. This is the only possible basis for a safe and successful society. The most, I would think, obvious you know, an inarguable pro-family statement. The family is the building block of society. It's not controversial. But then Hancock said, it's so offensive and it's so wrong. I mean, tell that to the king. He doesn't have a normative family. And then he said, if Danny really, really believes that, I'm a tolerant kind of guy, but don't try to impose it on everybody else, thank you very much. And certainly don't try to give any impression that it is anything other than a completely fringe view within the Conservative Party. Marriage and the, the, the family is a fringe view in the party what is going on here i mean it's just comic really and um um i i think 
you know, it's not true, obviously, that it's a fringe view in the Conservative Party. I mean, I think the Conservative Party is still conservative to that extent. Um, but there, it's a bit where you started the conversation. You know, the legacy of wanting to be seen to be social liberal is is quite strong. Not being judgmental about anything, not criticising anything, not saying anything is better than anything else. Um, that that is all playing into this discussion, and you know, I don't. I think it matters that Matt Hancock criticises it. People will make their own view, their own minds up about him. Um, but I do think that it is important that um, you know the Conservative Party stands up for like obvious truths. It doesn't mean you think single parents or divorced people, and one myself, it doesn't mean you think they're bad people. Uh, it just means that you know, probably there's something that most people aspire to, which is a kind of traditional family and everything that goes with it. And I don't see that's such a terrible thing to say. And actually, out there in the country, I don't think most people think it's a terrible thing to say either. We make ourselves look a bit stupid by kind of denying it, really. Absolutely. I mean, I don't have children or, or I'm not married, and I, but, I don't, but I don't think that society should necessarily be built around me just you know living in my house watching youtube videos and following politics I don't, that, that's just me uh, i talked to andrew Doyle about this on a podcast that may come out just before or just after this and he even said you know I don't, I don't, i'm a fine uh, as a gay person society doesn't have to be based completely around me because the, the criticism obviously of what kruger's saying is that okay in some way he means not i don't know gay marriage or not something else but of course i think it's okay to say that one thing is the main basis it doesn't mean you everything else is evil as, as you said so yeah that was an odd but was it just the optics of it that Hancock was responding to I mean he was so aghast because he said um, he said why after all should we as a, as a party essentially of equal opportunity and of freedom have a view on other people's marriages which is a weird statement but then he says please can we stop talking about this because it will put us out of power for a generation now is that the real concern that the optics in our ultra left lefty country were just too were too you know scream you know, people were squeamish about them mm-hmm. I mean, I think it is a bit of that. I think it's, again, I think it's London commentariat opinion. I don't think when you get out of London, people are in any way kind of worried about that. I think, you know, most people are more, in my view, kind of more capable of understanding nuance and exercising judgment than a lot of politicians think. And they're they're perfectly capable of coping with the idea that, um, you know, something is the norm, but other things kind of around that are also kind of okay. I think that's not a difficult set of propositions to live with and I think if you think the British people are too stupid to understand that then you probably shouldn't be in politics I think you're right I mean and the fact that Lewis Goodall on the, on this same show said about NatCon it was the politics of the pub late on a Friday night as a pejorative I mean God forbid that politicians should represent the things people talk about in the pub it was just such an elitist view isn't it I, it is I mean you hear this all the time obviously and um, you know the criticism of NatCon you know across the board from people was just just hilarious and you know too many people are just not used to hearing um what a lot of people in the country think they're just not in touch with it in any way and the things that you know people in london the commentary throw their hands up in horror about it are things that people talk about all the time in fact yeah and life goes on i know it's been an incredible 
coup from the left to sort of be able to make any conservative ideas just automatically verbose and in polite society. This is this is the thing we really are fighting against, or one of many. Yeah. That maybe brings me on to the um, the culture war, which we haven't really got into. We've got into it a bit because everything's the culture war. But but why have the Tories been so poor? at least in my opinion, on fighting the culture war? Because for a long time we kept hearing this phrase, stoking divisive culture wars, which is a kind of gaslighting phrase that if you don't like that your kid might be told that they're the other, another gender or that they're inherently evil for their skin colour or, you know, we, we can cite so many examples. Or The RAF say that um, it doesn't want any more white, useless white male pilots. There, there are just millions of examples we can cite and I, I talk about them all the time, obviously, on GB News with Andrew Doyle and on, on headliners. Um, and, but this idea that every time we brought it up, we were just said we were stoking divisive culture wars, and they've really failed to get a handle on this. Is it because of something uh, my friend Dominic Frisbee did an article about? He called it career risk. This was explained to him that a politician is facing a certain career risk by tackling these things, and it's much better for them to just leave it. And the only way it becomes a greater risk for them is if it's leaked to the press, and then they then have to be seen to be doing something about it, and thus the risk reverses. Is it just pure careerism? What do you think? I think it's a mix of lots and lots of different things, actually. I mean, you know, it kind of began as a wish not to be kind of unpleasant or critical uh, about people, probably. Um, but then it's it's kind of drifted. And I think, you know, politicians are all frightened of saying something that's taken out of context and then it being kind of hung around their neck every time they say anything. That's also part of the, the risk. Um, but I think the fundamental problem of all this, and that those are just symptoms of it, the fundamental problem is, um, you know, freedom and free speech are not as strong values as they they ought to be. And um, I always say when I'm giving like pep talks to people that I remember my mum and dad saying, you know, when somebody didn't agree with them, they said, well, it's a free country. And you don't hear people say that very much anymore because speech is quite heavily policed formally and informally. And I think if there was a stronger culture of, you know, I don't agree with you, but it's fine to say it, we wouldn't have some of the the problems, the reluctance to engage in the debates that exists at the moment. And I actually think, I mean, it's obvious, a lot of these ideas are absurd. The woke ideas are absurd in many cases. And, you know, if you have a free... Um, culture of debate they will just be laughed into nothingness in my view and that's what we should be encouraging to happen we don't have to kind of you know go about as some in the u.s would kind of policing banning stamping down on woke opinion we just need to be allowed to ridicule it and i think it will largely die out yeah exactly i hope i'm contributing to that movement but do you, think yeah, politi- do you think politicians actually believe it? I mean, obviously, you, these are your colleagues. I mean, when Ed Davies says that w- women can quite clearly have a penis or Keir Starmer says 99.9% of women don't or whatever it is, or even Sunak struggled to answer it initially when he was chancellor. Now he has actually said the right thing. Do, they, do, do any of them believe this nonsense or are they just terrified? I think, again, I think it depends who you ask. I, I think probably some of them do believe it in some kind of... You know that it that it is true in some metaphysical sense. They think that a woman can have a penis. You know, and I just can't quite 
get my head round the um, the world view that produces this, but I think some of them do do believe it. I mean, they're just like, I mean, they're just richly comic figures. These these people. I mean, they're just it just. You know, I think we'll just look at Ed Davey in 10 years and laugh at him when we see that video. It's just, at least I hope we will. It's just ridiculous. And the fact that so many people don't think it's ridiculous is, is quite a bad sign, I think. That's why it's so important to keep pointing out these ideas are, you know, they are untrue. <laughs> They're not in accordance with reality. And if you believe them, you are, you know, there's something kind of odd in your worldview. I think we just got to keep saying that. I mean, yeah, with Starmer, one imagines it's purely a cynical appeal to his voting base because a certain percentage of them think these things, you know, especially in London. That's my belief. Um, yeah, I think so. And obviously the party itself, the Labour Party itself is very divided on this sort of stuff, trying to manage its, um, its kind of Islington base with, you know, what, what, le- what is left of its Red Wall supporters who take different views on these questions. Yeah, and that's why he doesn't commit on anything. I mean, but it, it presents yeah. a strange dilemma for people like my parents who are, you know, live in the country. My mum was president of a local WI, salt of the earth people, but they vote Lib Dem partly because Tim Farron was, was local MP and he was pretty good. Mm. And um, But they say, no, they're like, we can't vote Tory. There's less like a given, but uh, but, yeah. but they're not getting, maybe reform won't have a candidate and they wouldn't vote for them. I mean, my mum said to me, well, former sort of, they're, they're, they're nuts, they're, they're nutters. And I said, well, who? who? Richard Tice doesn't seem very nuts. And then she conceded that he wasn't. But we have a, such a PR problem. I don't say we, but let's say conservatism has such a PR problem. But at the same time, the Lib Dems have gone completely mad. And, you know, they used to have those kind of voters. Since at least Joe Swinson onwards, perhaps even before, they've just gone so bonkers. But how can you capture those people as conservatives? It, doesn't, it seems like they automatically, you know, they can't vote Lib Dem or Labour, but they can't vote Tory either. I think, I mean, we've definitely lost the, um, for the time being anyway, we've definitely lost the kind of um, the social liberal vote. You know, as you say, it's kind of uncool to vote Tory. A lot of people would just never uh, think it. I mean, our solution in the past has been to appeal to self-interest. You know, okay, maybe I don't really like admitting to be a Tory, but I still like low taxes. I still like kind of, you know, being able to make money. I still like being able to get on with my life. Um, Or, you know, maybe more recently, I still like the education reforms and the improving schools under Michael Gove and so on. You know, I think you've got to, to appeal to that as well. And that's why... You know, it isn't enough to fight the culture war without having an economic war. You know, if people feel like they're getting better off and can see the country's getting better, then I think some of this kind of mad politics will just become less salient. It's, it's because you can't argue about economics that the culture war becomes so important. That's interesting because I've heard people say that as economics gets worse, people. Will, it'll get so bad that people will will not be able to engage in wokeness because they'll have more pressing concerns. That never seems to happen. I mean, even during the pandemic, people said we'll come together, which happened for about 10 seconds. So I, I'm not sure about that. You've sort of said the opposite. As people get wealthier, they'll forget about wokeness. Yeah, I think so. I think what we're seeing at the I mean, not forget about it, but I think it may just become less kind of dominant in voting 
uh, intentions and and worldview. I I mean I think it's perfectly possible for people to have different views about wokeness, obviously, and society can coexist with that as long as you don't try and impose it as a state ideology that you've got to sign up to to have certain roles or you know be in public life. I mean people can think whatever they want as long as they don't force it on anybody else as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I think a lot of what we're seeing at the moment is the the symptom of it's social conflict created by a nearly zero growth economy. The economy is not growing. You can't get a, on a house. You can't. You're not seeing your wages grow up like it go up like they used to. That's at the root of the strikes. You know, a lot of the kind of social protests that we're seeing. And I think ultimately a lot of that has an economic function. If you think your salary is going to go up, if you don't expect to have to go on strike to get anything better, if you think you can change job and improve your income and move for house to do it, then history suggests people tend to do that and worry less about other things. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think a lot of this stuff probably came about post-2008 crash. And it was the Occupy movement, which they kind of managed to, the establishment kind of managed to sort of fend off by doing the invent well this is one take they sort of fended that off by inventing this woke corporate stuff and and kind of you know didn't really present any real solutions for people but gave them this kind of faux activism they could focus on uh, to, to, to distract from their economic problems that's that's one take anyway and it it's that is an interesting question i mean you say their state ideology and you said in your natcon speech which i was going to pick up diversity equity and inclusion as something close to a state ideology is is what we have now and if you're into conspiracies um Someone pointed out that DEI is the Latin singular for God from Deus. So yes. this literally is their yes. religion. And uh, it does seem that way, doesn't it? You know, that little point aside, it definitely seems like this is the new state religion. And um, Yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, it's getting that way, for sure. It is. It is still not like an absolute requirement if you're in public life. To, or in the civil service or in the kind of quango or a big business or whatever. It's still not an absolute requirement to believe these things or talk about them. It's quite difficult to openly dissent from them unless you are like a conservative politician. Um, and it is your life's a lot easier if you just go along with it as opposed to fight it all the time. So it's not far it's not far off that. And that's why, you know, I'm I'm frustrated the government is not um policing free speech in the sense of, you know, allowing it, creating space for it to happen, standing up for people who exercise free speech even when others don't like it. I mean I, I it may have happened, I can't remember, but I, if so, it's not very often that any leading figure in the government has spoken up for J.K. Rowling, for example. I mean, she's like one of the most famous people in the world who is British. Mm. And, you know, who stands up for her saying what she wants to say? We, we as, a, as a government, as a, as a country, we've just got to support people who want to say what they think. If we, if we don't do that, we just have really, really serious problems down the line. Yeah, we become incredibly meek about all of our values, free speech being one of the main ones. And and where do you yeah. where do you think it came from, wokeness? Because I've seen a lot of debate lately online about it comes from law, it's downstream from certain laws. Some people say the Equality Act 2010, but then why is it global or at least Western? 
And then some people say it's from academia, it's from French postmodernists, it's from Derrida, and other people say, no, it's absurd. Obviously, it's spread by social media. Elon Musk has talked talked about the woke mind virus. But I just wonder if you had a take on where you think it all started. I think, I mean, I'm not sure there's a simple cause, and I've not seen, you know, a really good explanation myself. I mean, you, you can say, okay, it's, it started in you know, French universities and the Frankfurt School and all this sort of thing. But it still doesn't explain why it kind of took in a way that, you know, it hasn't always. Um, I think, I mean, it probably, you know, some of it has its origins in, um, quite rightly, after the Second World War, people being very, very fearful of racism, eugenics, anything like that, and discrimination on that. And then people have sought other forms of discrimination to to kind of fight against as one battle seems to be won or largely won, you move on to the next one, um, which is how you end up with, with trans rights or, or whatever the latest thing is. So I think the, the climate is kind of favourable. Um, and I think probably there are, you know, a lot of people for whom this fulfills a, a kind of role in their life. It, I mean, I think it is religious to that extent when the mainstream churches have kind of largely given up um, preaching any sort of difficult version of religion that demands anything from you then people look for something else. And I, I think that's probably part of it as well. So I, I don't think there's a single cause. I think things have kind of come together and um, and created it. I, I, an interesting question for me is, why does it seem to have taken more in English-speaking countries? You know, it's, it hasn't... I mean, it is around in continental Europe, but um, um, not to the same extent. And... You know, I can't imagine a mainstream British politician saying what President Macron said, which is, you know, French history is French history. We aren't taking down any statues. It's all part of the story. You've got to just kind of come to terms with that, was basically what he said. And that is very countercultural here. And yeah. I, I don't know why. I'm not sure why. But that might be part of the explanation if we understood why it's more in English-speaking countries than elsewhere. Well, I can give you a couple of answers. Um, one, the, the French thing is they're always more patriotic. And because they're interested in protecting French as a language, because it's not the dominant language, they want to always protect France. So they, they're allowed to have patriotism without... I mean, you know more about this than me. I think you have a first in French and history from Oxford. You know far more about me, but I'm giving you one answer. It's just on that point. They're, that doesn't mean you're right-wing in France if you're patriotic, so it's more acceptable. But the other point, the English-speaking point, isn't it surely that, that, that it's the dominance of America and that, and that these are wokenesses to, to some degree an American phenomenon, even if it didn't start there? But then you, then you might say, well, why has it been taken up so much in America? So perhaps it doesn't answer the question. But I just think part of it is America exporting their problems, like critical race theory seems a very American idea, or certainly the one that resonates with Americans. Is that it? Yeah, you're probably right. I think you're definitely right about France. You know, most European countries are allowed to be more kind of patriotic than we seem to be. In fact, Britain seems a real outlier on that nowadays. Um, and yeah, America, I mean, it probably is. I mean, as you say, I'm not quite sure why it um, uh, started off in America, except that sort of most bad ideas and most good ideas do seem to. They've just got a massive intellectual community that produces them. Yeah, yeah, it could be, it could be that. Maybe I'll have to check with Andrew Dor. Um, he's like the king of this sort of stuff. But 
Yeah. But how do we... This is a question I always ask, and you may have answered it slightly already. I always ask, how do we win this culture war? That's assuming you accept the premise of the question, but how do we, how do we win it? We win it by um, policing free speech, allowing people to say what they want and being really assertive about that and standing up for people protecting them when they want to say what they think. I think there's much more we could do in... Um, in the public service, not just civil service, but kind of broadly where government has influence to push back on this idea that you must believe certain things and, you know, you must do your training on this, that and the other, and you must, if you don't, then you're kind of marked down for it. I think all that is where the government can help and change the the climate quite a lot. Um, but otherwise, and, and ridicule, I think it's, it follows on from free speech that you've got to be able to ridicule your opponents and um, that has been quite a tradition in this country if you go back to you know Gilray cartoons or even Hogarth or whatever you know we've had a very robust debate and all of a sudden that's no longer um, really possible and you know look at the reactions to you know some of Boris's comments in his articles over the years you know, the very, very kind of touchy, sensitive view to any metaphor, anything that's kind of appearing to be, you know, sort of sensitive for people. And we've just got to get away from all of that. And, you know, people like me, politicians, others who do have a bit of a place in the public square, we should be willing to use it and push the boundaries and not accept that there are certain things that you can't say in the end free speech dies if people don't use it so you've got to use it it's part of this the problem with with the blob and the civil service i mean you talk about policing free speech there's an example out today as we record where andrea jenkins is saying the blob blocked her from meeting kathleen stock when she was working on the university's free speech bill so that kind of brings together the two points and there are similar examples where Suella Bradman will try and get something done and her team will all go off to some woke training that she hasn't okayed. Or Dominic Raab, arguably bullied out by the blob. You know, so why is it... Because I had Richard Tice on here, but he's not been as close to it as you. He said, well, I would just give them a warning and then fire them because he's thinking of a business, which he's run businesses. Whereas you've actually been in the civil service and a cabinet minister, so you must know both sides of it. So why can't ministers control the civil service and stop them you know doing these woke or anti-liberal things yeah i think um there are lots of reasons really one of course is that um ministers don't run their departments you know the the, the system is designed so that you don't manage the department you're in the permanent secretary is responsible for the finances and for the personnel management the minister is not you're surrounded by a bunch of people who you didn't choose don't necessarily want you know all your senior officials were chosen by somebody else you can't move them along you know and the, as you say in the private sector if you if you told somebody to run a company and said you can't change anything it does you can't change any of the people around you and you can't change what the money's spent on nobody would expect that business to succeed and yet that's what we expect in the the public sector so what i think is impressive is the ministers who do get things done i'm not surprised that there are so many who just kind of 
you know who don't who 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 can't fight this this and it, it isn't always i mean it isn't even often i don't think um deliberate blocking by the civil service of course there's a kind of world view in the civil service but in the end if a minister says i want this to happen then it happens the civil service can't refuse that um but ministers can't do everything you know you can't be paying attention to everything all the time and so kind of entropy takes over and it's only in the two or three areas where you they know you're interested and you are on the case every day then things get done but in a department of tens of thousands of people it's just not realistic to think it's going to be like that all the time so I, I just think we need to we need to change the the system i think the the northcote trevelyan model um you know from victorian england that was created for departments of like 20 or 30 people is is just uh, it's just not suited to the modern world ministers need to bring people in they need to be able to choose their officers they need to have senior people they trust and are committed to the goals and when they pull levers they need to work they should be able to move where the money goes and this sort of thing that's just like a basic thing for running an organization that's something so um, change yeah dominic cummings seemed to be pretty obsessed with that and getting rid of the whitehall man but he didn't really get time before he got ousted i guess no i mean he was absolutely right on that and i'm i'm uh you know i haven't agreed with dom on everything like lockdowns for example but um generally i'm a big admirer of dom and i i you know i think it's a great tragedy in many ways that he and boris couldn't find a way of working together i think we would not be in this position today as a country if they had yeah he's got a lot of very interesting ideas totally wrong on lockdown as you say well i mean why has the blob if you want to call it that shifted so radically left because of course i know these people because i'm in north london and certainly extended blob which i i count as bank of england bbc think tanks you know as well as just the civil service and it, i tried to write an article about it called confessions of a conservative rebel in a daily skeptic where i was saying how have i ended up conservative as a sort of artsy farty person who in all you know in in the past would not have been and yet they're sort of very normal people with families but you talk to them and they're, they're sort of pro blm pro antifa even and where they would have just been sort of neoliberal centrists in the past they're still quite sensible on the economy but socially they become incredibly left-wing and i heard i was out with some of them and two of them said that jacob rees mock belonged in jail which is my colleague at gb <laughs> news and your former colleague i suppose and it's um yeah. i just thought that was so shocking I was like, for what and you can't really pin them down on what some of them think it's just for his views i think some of them it's for something to do with covid contacts that i don't understand but it it's kind of the hatred of the conservative party um, you know it, it seems to me you're working with people who despise the, the party and the government that they're working for and they've gone so radically left i mean what's gone on there yeah i i mean i think a lot of this is just like um you know i'm not sure how many people really believe it in the sense that you know they could articulate a set of belief propositions about antifa or blm or whatever it's just part of the the kind of intellectual climate and the stuff you just sort of say without um necessarily um you kind of being a committed uh, believer in it but and so i think it just reflects the intellectual climate the intellectual climate is left and part of the reason it's left is that we haven't done anything to change it and uh, um you know so much of what 
conservative governments have done in the last 15 years is to kind of basically accept the left world view but to say well maybe we wouldn't go as far as you or we could do it better than you but we don't really disagree with the kind of goals about society we don't really disagree that it's the government's job to kind of protect everybody if we can for example um, we don't really um, disagree that freedom has its limits and the government ought to intervene to sort of help people and protect people um, there's been no attempt to explain what the market economy is and how it works and why you know governments telling people what to do doesn't necessarily always produce the same outcome so we haven't done any of that so you can't be surprised that people don't uh, kind of automatically think those things they think the climate that was created by new labor and we've to a very large extent gone along with that and not tried to change it so it's our own fault really i think yeah it's like you say it's become the social convention to say these things at dinner parties and also as you say conservative is that the big flaw of conservatism that it's it's just progressivism but a bit slower is the big flaw that because i was reading how to be a conservative by roger scruton and he was at the, at the you know one of our th- foremost thinkers on conservatism but even he was struggling to de- define it is the fundamental problem that it, it it comes from this inductive reasoning this kind of Burkean thing of this seems to work so let's go with it we don't want that initially that being the French Revolution in Burt's case is it is it that the conservatism lacks its own sort of generative power it's just a sort of reaction to things moving and we go oh not that fast is that the big problem yeah I think I mean it it's a fundamental kind of fault line I think within conservatism that um though between those who think that um sort of conservatism is what works and the best thing to do is sort of muddle along in the light of experience i mean that sounds a bit dismissive i don't intend it to be but that's that's one view and the other is that you need a set of principles that guide your action and um i mean hayek for example famously wrote his essay why i am not a conservative you know he said he was a liberal and yet nevertheless he's considered to be this sort of far-right figure by lots of people nowadays um and i think that is a that's a sort of fundamental tension and i think that um I, i guess i'm somewhere in the middle in that i think you do need a set of principles you do need to kind of believe in something otherwise you are just kind of accepting the intellectual climate of your times the whole time and you have no guide to like how you would take decisions if you don't have any principles but on the other hand they don't apply always and for all time and in every circumstance and um i suppose i would say conservatism is about finding the right balance between those those two things that you know our constitution has developed to some extent by muddling along and changing bit by bit over over time but you know the economy uh, has generally worked by having a fairly clear set of values and principles about keeping the government out of the economy the value of freedom in economic life and so on and applying those to policy making so i don't think there's a simple answer i think that the contrast is 
with the left who do think there's a simple answer that a certain set of principles are always applicable whatever the circumstance you should always be doing this and you know countries are always better if they come closer to these principles and that feels to me completely wrong yeah and it's very hard to compete with that sort of comprehensive utopian ideology that covers all bases and gives you this complete blueprint even though it doesn't work and it's nonsense but is that one reason conservatism is stronger in america then because they have the written constitution and the first amendment and so on i think it might be a bit i mean i think we could probably do with something like um uh the first amendment here now but of course we don't have kind of constitutional acts in the same way so you know parliament could pass a law but it could just be overturned by the next parliament um i think what what strikes me as different about the american debate is they do talk about principles more and they do have a sense of they have more when i lived in the us what struck me as one of the differences was that there was more of a debate about what it is to live a good life you know kind of what kind of society are we trying to create here and how should people live to um you know be most kind of develop themselves as best they can in that society and we don't we don't really have a debate like that unfortunately maybe natcom just began to touch on it and there was quite a strong reaction yeah it's good that natcom is a start isn't it finally to starting to define what conservatism is and actually fight back in this so-called culture war and um i just wanted to quickly pivot back to my blob type questions because Obviously, you, you, you may have some inside information on this. What happened to Liz Truss? What, 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 did, what went on there, really? Because I was speaking to Dominic Frisbee, and he said, well, look, the situation with the, the guilds was already happening. They pinned it on Quarteng and Truss, but it wasn't their fault. And as a sort of point B question, can one even enact free market policies of the kind you espouse with the blob, with the Bank of England in place, given what happened to Truss? So I think the the fundamental problem with Truss um, was that she didn't prepare the ground, and you know I and quite a lot of others said to her, "You um, you need to spend a bit of time explaining what you're trying to do and why." And it comes back to my point, you know, people had not heard about free market economy economics for 25 years, so all of a sudden they were going to get frightened when they saw somebody trying to do it. Um, I think she should have spent a bit longer explaining what she was trying to do why it was the right thing where things had gone wrong approach things stepwise maybe a little bit more rather than doing this big bang when when people weren't quite ready for it so it's failure of tactics not what she was trying to do in my view i do think you know having having made those mistakes um i think she had the right probably for people to rally around her uh, whether it's the bank you know whether it's the permanent officialdom whatever um, to try and get through that difficult situation rather than um, telling her she got it wrong and reversing course and I think she had the right to expect a bit more kind of support than she got unfortunately I still believe she could have pushed through if she'd really insisted on it and wanted to but but unfortunately it wasn't like that yeah well now she'll probably end up on gb news because that's where everyone else has kind of been quasi quarting was on the sofa with dan wooten we've got marg we've got um lee anderson 
we've got Portillo, it's getting him, it's getting ridiculous. They're all pushing me out of a job. Eventually, I'll be replaced with a, a Tory politician. Um, maybe you could come on headline. I won't do your job. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, but um, just on that then, what was it like, if you've got time, uh, working with Boris? And do you think he could still come back in some significant way? So I loved working with Boris. I mean, he's a he's a endlessly fascinating and frustrating person, um, but you know, great fun to be around. You know, very um, intellectually stimulating. Uh, you know, he has a big sort of hinterland that he doesn't always kind of show, but he's interested in lots and lots of things, and you can talk to him about lots and lots of things. Um, he has this amazing ability to kind of connect with people that you you do see a bit, but to kind of hit it off with the most unlikely people and establish a rapport with them that was quite amazing sometimes. Um, so I I really enjoyed it. Um, I I think you know we didn't agree on policy in the end, and lockdown was why I I resigned and. I, you know, I'm sorry it came to that, but um, I think he is a very kind of maligned figure, really. Now, I think uh, you know there's a kind of obsession with him in the media commenting classes in a way that just seems absurd, ridiculous. Now, this this current thing about handing over his WhatsApp messages or whatever is like you know he's always the story. It doesn't matter kind of what the circumstances. Um, so I I I, th I thought it was great. Um, it was you know fun to work with and just disappointed it it didn't work out. I I I don't know about coming back. I don't really think so. I think um, the world moves on. I'm sure he he can and should have some job in British public life, definitely. I think it'd be a pity if he just kind of gives up and writes his book and gives speeches. But, you know, to come back, that's, I think that's tricky. Yeah, but he has left a massive hole because, as you say, he had that rapport, he had the charisma that other other leaders don't have, so that's another problem for the Tories. But, um, so yeah, you, you point out you resigned. I was actually um, on Mark Dolan's show as that broke live. And I remember saying, I assume what you were doing was trying to appeal to the, the better angels of Boris's nature. And I remember being quite pleased that I came up with that quote, although it wasn't me originally. Um, but um, do, you, do you stand by that now? Because it was over, I believe, the second lockdown. It was over the Plan B stuff. And That's right. So do you think it was the right decision? And where do you, what do you think about lockdowns now? I mean, I definitely think it was the right decision. Um, you know, the fact that we succeeded in changing the policy, and I think me going had a part in that, but only a part. It was people like Steve Baker and, you know, the others in Parliament who in the end, you know, made it impossible to proceed. And in the end, cabinets blocked it. Um, so the, but the fact that we have succeeded and everybody's forgotten, means that everyone's also forgotten how important it was to take that position and make sure that it didn't happen. So I, I still think it was the right thing to do. I was incredibly disappointed about it because there was just so much else I wanted to do. But I felt like, you you know, we just could not go down that path again. It, it was disaster. The evidence didn't support it. And, you know, if we had, we would have um, now had lots and lots of people saying that the Christmas 2021 lockdown stopped the, uh, you know, the spread of whatever the, I can't even remember the variant now, Omicron, 
um, and lockdowns were a valid tool. And as it is, we've now got the counter the counter evidence to that. So I think it is really important. I did find lockdowns kind of really disturbing, I must admit. I mean, I, I, I was lucky so for, for the worst period. I was doing the trade talks with Barnier. So I had some approximation to a normal life in, you know, traveling to Brussels and, and so on. I wasn't stuck in my house all day like so many people. Um, but even so, um, I just I just found the whole thing like just completely disturbing. People thrown back on their own resources and not having any of the normal connections. And I think something very weird was released into society that summer with, you know, the BLM protests and, you know, the the whole phenomenon of some people becoming like fanatical lockdowners and others becoming kind of fanatical sort of conspiracists about the WF and all of this. And, you know, everybody seemed to just, there wasn't any moderating force on anything for a time. And I, I just found the whole thing extraordinary, weird, disturbing, malign. And I just, you know, hope that um, it's now just been that we, that we, we it, we've all tried to forget it. And let's hope that's a good thing. Um, we don't want to go down that road again, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, we tried to forget it like a kind of trauma. I was disgusted by it from the start, really. And I think I was making jokes about it at the start, and then I came out against it. I said it was never in favor of it. Were you one of these people who was sort of, okay, the first one was understandable? Because my position is I don't recognize the state's right to just take away my job at a moment's notice. And, you know, I just don't recognize the right to do that in any circumstance. So therefore, I say lockdown can never be right. And we abandoned all our planning and all that. And it was never thought to be a legitimate idea. But are you on these people that say, okay, the first one was okay, but after that, it was not acceptable? Or well, I understand why it was done the first one to a much greater extent. I think the, you know, the autumn twenty twenty lockdowns just didn't seem to me to be justified by any kind of rational balance of evidence in any way. I, I accept that there was not. You know, we didn't know a lot in March and April 2020. Um, I can understand why the decision was taken. And I think if 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 we'd all been locked down for like three weeks and then it had been over, we would now be saying, well, you know, um, I kind of understand why that was necessary. But obviously we would never do that again. It's the fact that it went on and on and on and we seemed to lose the tools to get ourselves out of it that was so worrying. Um, but I, I agree with you in principle. I think it was wrong. Um, I mean, I, I got COVID at the time of the first lockdown and I was knocked out at home and not properly following kind of what was going on a lot of the time. But I think if I if I had been around, I would probably have felt more strongly about even that one than I did. Okay. And you said something very interesting in your NatCon speech. You said that lockdown merely revealed our collectivism and over-dependence on the state. It's not an exact quote, but you, you're saying that, you know, it wasn't the cause. It actually revealed we've been over-dependent on the state for ages. I think it would... I don't think we could have done lockdowns. I mean, 
if, if certain conditions had not already been in place. I mean, one of them was technology, obviously. You just couldn't have had it without modern kind of IT and connectivity. Um, but I think also as a sort of psychological, um, political process was already in place that you know we've been told um you know the the whole net zero thing of you know the whole sustainability thing of you know live local don't be a burden stay at home don't travel don't don't use resources try and save uh everything i think all that that sort of thing that have been um kind of preached at us for 20 25 years was a, a sort of psychological preconditioning to to some of this um and and why it didn't come as such a political shock we've all been told we keep being told all the time that every everything you do has some political kind of judgment inherent in it you know whether it's way you put your rubbish or what sort of car you buy and you know everything you do in your life and i think that's why you know another major political imposition on our life somehow didn't seem as weird to many people clearly as it did to me and, and so i think there was a precondition there that you know a genuinely free society would not have put up with in quite the same way yeah and that is one of the most disturbing aspects the acceptance of it or even the sort of rabid insistence we do more of it and even a recent times poll suggesting that a majority thinks we should have done more lockdown or especially amongst the young i remember the numbers are we should have locked down even harder they still think that i find that amazing yeah i just i, I can't believe they really think it and i i do think that you know, people have not engaged properly with the pros and cons yet, probably. You know, most people's belief about the fatality rate of COVID seems like way out of line with with what it actually was. Um, and of course, nobody's really sort of discussing it. There, there, even now, there is no really serious attempt to engage with the trade-offs, economy versus health versus society versus travel, all this sort of thing. You know, it's like, it's more like we're just we did this horrific thing we know it probably wasn't really justified and now we're just trying to forget and pretend it never happened that yeah. seems to be like the, psychi the psych psychology at the moment so answering a poll yes we should do more we should have done more like that it could just be another social virtue signaling like saying you like blm because it, it indicates compassion in some way it's supposed to anyway i don't think it does but it becomes a sort of i think it's also it's sort of acknowledging to yourself that the government if you say no i don't i think it was wrong and the government shouldn't do it again um you're kind of acknowledging to yourself that everything you suffered in that time was pointless and not everybody wants to make that admission i think that's right. sort of a difficult thing right everything the government okay i'll go with what the government said i don't you know i'm not going to think hard about it the government says it was the right thing okay yeah, everything you suffered and perhaps everything you enacted on other people in many cases that you probably got, many people probably got a bit too zealously involved in it in grassing on their neighbours or you're not wearing a mask or whatever it was and they probably feel a certain amount of guilt about that. You know, that's my yeah. amateur psychology. I think, all of, I think all of this and, you know, it explains, I think, in part anyway, why we've got some of the problems we've got at the moment. You know, we've got this massive debt, we've got all the sort of overhang in the public services and so on. It's like people have forgotten why we've got that. 
you hardly ever hear people say, well, maybe, I mean, it's on the fringe, but it's not a mainstream proposition to say, well, you know, if we hadn't paid everyone to stay at home for a year, maybe we wouldn't have some of these problems. That's still a sort of slightly fringe opinion, unfortunately, even though it's obviously correct. I know, one of those mad fringe opinions like belief in the family. Um, yeah. Just, so just lastly, because um, I don't want to take too much of your time, but there's one massive area I haven't actually... Well, there's, there's actually three, because I haven't asked you about climate change and Brexit, which you, which you can comment on if you want. They're, they're, I'm so, so poor on the technical details of both, that I just thought, you know, you've done so much on... You did a long podcast with Brendan O'Neill on the Windsor Framework, and you've done a good speech on, on climate change on a net zero, which is called Not Dark Yet, or it's not dark yet, but it's getting there after the Bob Dylan song, which I also love. Um, and people can get to go to that. But the thing I really want to ask you about is, is Christianity, because you said in your NatCon speech, you used the phrase fallen world. And I thought, oh, maybe David's a Christian because he's using that phrase. And then I found elsewhere you'd said on the Irreverent podcast that you were a non-practicing believer. And I, I, I sort of felt similar in some ways that I know a lot of people who are sort of broadly Christian or believe in God and want to be Christian, but they have a disappointment in the church during lockdown. They have a disappointment in the wokeness of the Church of England. Is this roughly where you stand? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think if you're, a, you probably aren't really a believer if you're not practicing, I, I I think honestly, I, I think that is Paul all part of the commitment, and I, I guess I haven't quite made that kind of commitment yet. Even though there's a lot of my kind of intellectual world view is very shaped by Christianity and the propositions of it, um, and I think um, I mean I I was shaped by lockdown actually, and I felt that. Um, you know the position the church the mainstream churches took and it was was extraordinary and i felt like just at a time when everybody in the country was suddenly confronted with the great questions of life and death and you know how we all were as people and how we interacted with each other the church just sort of shut up shop and said well we haven't really got anything to say about that sorry and it, it felt just like a complete abdication to me you know i'm not a member of the church of england i don't have the right to tell them what to do that's their thing but it just felt like um something really odd is happening and the church doesn't have the the confidence in its beliefs to say we have got an answer for you and you should listen and it just that, to me that was like a real moment in in thinking why is this what's going on and getting me to think much much harder about it all and i do think that um one of the um, um, one of the problems of western societies at the moment is the lack of um you know relatively widespread at least understanding of the propositions of christianity I'm not in any way arguing for a sort of theocracy or you know anything like that in any way but I do think that Christianity and its world view like underpins everything that's made our societies what they are and when people don't understand it they have a problem understanding why society is as it is and people always want to believe in something so they'll believe in something odd if they don't believe in tried and tested mainstream religion so yeah that, that's what sort of worries me i suppose 
It worries me, and I'm not sure we can win this culture war thing without Christianity. And as you say, people will just follow Just Stop Oil, Extinction Rebellion, Wokeness, whatever whatever becomes Remainerism, whatever, the different things become their religion. So I'm, I'm worried yeah. that Christianity's dead and that we can't... I mean, is it dead in this country, and can we can we win without it? I, th- I think we we have to believe it isn't dead that you know christianity has come and gone and um come back again and i think it it always will um i do think that you know we've got the problem that most people it seems have relatively little understanding of you know the basic beliefs of christianity you know i may be the last generation that sort of sang hymns every day at school and had the king james bible read to them every day at school and so on and however kind of annoying you think it is at the time it all sinks in and you you have a a sort of knowledge that is hard to replicate any other way and i, I do think that you know the the, the fact that people don't largely aren't at first base about it is is part of the problem but I, I do think that's also part of the church's problem if the church just accommodates itself to mainstream society all the time then why bother I, I you know i think christianity ought to be a bit odd and countercultural, and people ought to feel uncomfortable with what the bishops and christians say otherwise why bother with it it's, it's got to be difficult and challenge you and be t- giving you something you're not getting in any other way. Otherwise, th- it's not a belief system at all. That's interesting. Yeah, it, that, that's interesting. But, but at the same time, we had a better country when it was the kind of the, the, just the furniture. I mean, certainly my generation, we yeah. still sung hymns every day. We still went across okay, to the good. church. Yeah, but now it's gone. I, and I'm very disturbed that my nephew and nephews and niece won't have that and I find that very reckless and risky that we've all just embraced secularism and we think that's just going to be fine but yeah I'm very skeptical on that yeah I I I sort of struggle for the words on this and it is a very difficult thing to talk about in mainstream political discourse Um, and when you try it always kind of comes out wrong and it you know probably has a bit in this as well but but I do think that you know, a worldview that says this this world is all there is, and um, you know that's all that matters is, in the end, always going to feel a bit impoverished, and we probably feel the effects of that across society, one way or another. Yeah. Okay. Well, because because I don't want to take too much of your time, but I do also feel it maybe is absurd to bring on the former chief Brexit negotiator and not briefly ask you about Brexit. I mean, <laughs> because I know I, mean, I probably should have asked you more about it, but it's just, I'm almost, I'm not sick of it, but it's, you know, it is important. But I mean, I was speaking to someone at the Bank of England and they said, well, Starmer's going to win and then we're going to rejoin. And people think, aren't you crazy when you say that? But there are people, they're out there and they, and they believe that's what we're going to do. But where do you see it at the moment? In a sort of broad overview, you know, we were told that it's been an economic disaster do you think it's been an economic disaster? Do you think the benefits are still ahead of us? Do you think the sovereignty outweighs the economic hit in the short term? What do you think? So I think, I mean, first of all, I think Starmer definitely would like to take us back in and whatever he says now would have a go, you know, maybe bit by bit, but I think he definitely would wish to. So that is a real risk if we lose the next election. Um, 
I think that my basic belief about this is that countries that are in charge of their own affairs and can sort of set their own rules and tailor things to what suits them as a country are always going to do better than countries that have it imposed on them. And that's what we've got. Brexit's about democracy, it's about national independence, it's about running your own affairs, and it's about being able to kick um, your rulers out if you don't like what they're doing. And every EU member state is limited to some extent in that respect. They can't change the commissioners. If they want to change a lot of their laws, they've got to get everybody else to agree it in Brussels and so on. They're limited democracies as nations and we've just taken back full responsibility and we're struggling with it that's undoubtedly true but I don't think it's the wrong thing to do I do think that Brexit has you know there always was going to be a short run small hit on trade I think we're through that already I don't don't believe it's going to um, get worse I think what matters is growth and there you know growth has been the same speed as the other Europeans since we left I mean we should be doing better than that but the idea that's been hit I just think isn't borne out but I do think there's a general again a climate of people saying Brexit has failed Brexit isn't working whatever um, and the government is not pushing back on it, it you know it's almost like The government thinks that at the moment, and this is probably one of the big changes from the Boris world to what came after, that the government thinks that Brexit is sort of a bit embarrassing and it would be best to kind of move on from it and, you know, settle everything as quick as we can and then move on. And I, I think if you don't believe in your own central policy, then why is anybody else going to believe in it either? And that's why we've got this drift in opinion. But fundamentally, I will not be persuaded that being in charge of your own affairs and being a national democracy is a bad thing. And I just think the government should talk more about that, talk about the opportunities, and we will succeed. I really believe that. Right, because the anger, when I speak to North London Remainers or Rejoiners, their anger, and they are very angry, is that we've alienated our closest trading bloc, which they think is absurd. And if, especially if they're atheist materialists, you know, why wouldn't that be the biggest disaster? Because, it, you know, why would we make our lives so much more difficult? And there's no, and because they don't recognize sovereignty really as a, as a goal anyway, there's nothing to offset that. And they also would say people on your side have basically duped the average person who was no, notices that their life has got worse in this country but doesn't quite know why and that Brexit was your sort of answer to that but it was a sort of false answer and they're sort of furious about all that. What do you think? So I think this whole thing that you know you hear so often that people voted for Brexit because they were unhappy with their lives is just like unbelievably patronising to people. People can make their own minds up perfectly well. They understood what was at stake in Brexit. It's whether we were governed to a large extent from Brussels or whether we were governed in London. And the polling straight after the vote showed that the biggest single factor for leave voters was the belief that decisions about Britain ought to be taken in Britain. That was the main thing and obviously a major one of those things was immigration but the fundamental sovereignty thing was was fundamental and again I think you've got to be an intellectual not to think these things are important. Most people out there do think they're important. 
Um, in my experience, the the commentary is much more worried about you know queuing up in um, airports and their second homes in France and Italy than they are about the the economic propositions. I'm probably being a bit unfair to them there, but that's certainly what you see on on Twitter. I don't think they can stand up the proposition that the country is doing worse. I just and they they the have to in the end make an argument against democracy to support their propositions and I, I don't think they're really willing to do that which is why you get them talking about all sorts of other stuff instead rather than the core sovereignty democracy running your own affairs proposition well some of that stuff did come from someone at the bank of england with an, with an economics degree and they, they were making the economic case though i did also hear about about holidays and queues as well, which is not something I face. I just never go on holiday, but they do seem to be very worked <laughs> off about that as well. Yeah, fair enough. There I is. I mean, there is. There is obviously there is. Like I say, I think there is an economic hit in the short run. I don't think it's anything like as big as people have said, but obviously coming out of a trading zone has a hit. Um, but then I think being able to open your own market, set its own rules, um, run it in the way that suits you, is outweighs that it's it's a medium term gain for the short run hit yeah well i'm annoyed about the the economic part because i'm so bad on economics i can never win the argument so i have to focus on the sovereignty part and i certainly agree with you about the patronizing aspect of you know they just had unhappy lives and they thought brexit would solve it that's dealt with in that brexit on civil war film the channel 4 film i'm sure i can't remember if you're in it actually i'm sure you've seen no it, i'm not um, okay. I, I, i'm not interesting enough character i think <laughs> yeah there's, there's a great scene where a woman's complaining about her life in a focus group and then the next scene cuts to the leader of the remain campaign and he what he should say is we've not listened to these people and we've ignored them what he actually says is they've already got to them before us as in the leave campaign or leave time campaign type people sort of brainwash them first but they even in the dark even in the movie they fail to acknowledge that no what the point was you didn't listen to people that's that was my take anyway you just you know you patronize people yeah but i think that i mean obviously that was a very um um slanted view of the debate that that whole film i mean there were there were lots of interesting things in it but uh, and uh, compressed but uh, i don't think it really because the world view of the writers was so strong that they couldn't really kind of look at the arguments fairly in my view yeah well exactly and you could tell at the, the postscript at the end was, was ultra remain you, you could see their bias very clearly but it's just interesting yeah. even in their even that was a moment where they could have been a bit more you know neutral but they, you could see they still don't grasp it because even in they still they, they wrote that first scene where the woman's complaining and and they make her complaints seem somewhat valid somewhat ridiculous but somewhat valid but in the next scene they're like oh they've got to them you're like oh you still don't get it i mean so yeah, yeah. they're never going to get it but, but never mind that's going to continue and the only thing we, we've, we've done a long podcast so I won't press you but the only other thing is climate but maybe people should go to your speech basically in your not dark yet speech the, the broad argument is we, we have a little bit of time to try and stop the net zero madness from crippling our economy is that roughly it? Yeah I, I mean basically the, the speech um, it's quite a long speech so it is worth having a look at it if people are interested uh, but basically uh, I, I'm not taking issue with the science I'm saying, you know, suppose we want to do net zero, um, we're going about it in the wrong way. And certainly the idea that it's going to be good for us, it's actually going to help economic growth and we'll all be better, is 
is in my view just kind of laughable that we're replacing a good system of generating energy with a less good one that's more expensive more complicated more costly less reliable obviously that's not going to be good for the economy and I, I don't you almost don't need to go any further than that I my basic view is that with the technologies that we've got net zero by 2050 is not feasible uh, unless you're willing to contemplate large-scale like demand repression i.e rationing uh, to make the demand and the supply match up and i don't think most people want that but nevertheless governments might try because they're kind of locked into to an ideology and that's why it's so important to fight this while we still can as you said and do you think we have much hope in in fighting that because i'm actually about the culture war but in a way the bigger war is the is the climate madness war whatever you'd call it because they want us to live they want us to eat the bugs and be happy and uh, live in the cold have these useless heat pumps no cars 50 minute cities whatever it is climate lockdowns maybe you don't want to get too conspiratorial but i mean can we defeat this yeah, I think we can. I think there's already the signs of resistance against, as you say, heat pumps and electric cars and so on. Um, people resisted pretty quickly when their their energy bills went up last year. I know that's not primarily for climate reasons, but but it's it's a bit of it. Um, I I just don't think, in the end, I don't think at least i hope people won't be willing to put up with the restrictions on their daily lives that this implies and i don't think they've got um i i i I think the idea for example you can decarbonize the grid the electricity grid in 10 years is is simply an impossible thing to do and as soon as we try to do it seriously um people will react against it so i still believe that you know the people of this country of every country actually when they're given the chance have got a lot of common sense about things and generally make good judgments about things in the end and i think we'll find that on this as well absolutely i agree all right well thanks so much for all that david that was it's a long podcast i barraged you with a lot of questions on a lot of different subjects very very interesting um where can people find you twitter it's at David G.H. Frost, in case somehow people are not following you. Is there anywhere else specifically you'd like to point people to? So probably just my Telegraph columns, weekly Telegraph column. Um, there's a, a Telegraph web page that has them all on, uh, which is fairly easy to find. So that's that's the other place where you can get it. But it's all on Twitter as well. So that's my main outlet to the world. All right. And I absolutely recommend the NatCon speech on YouTube david frost natcon or lord frost and you'll find that and that was a really good speech and um thanks so much for doing the show not at all it's great good talking very interesting thanks a lot well that was lord frost very interesting episode i thought very generous of him to give so much of his time hope i asked at least some of the questions you would want to hear if you're on the youtube please hit subscribe if you're listening on the audio give us a five star review or just tell a friend about the show so they can support the current thing and we've got so many great episodes lined up and we'll see you again next week <laughs>